Welcome back to That's a Second Millennium. This is episode 25. We're going to continue discussing the history of geology uh, between the time of Nicholas Steno and the uh, mid-19th century. So we're going to talk in particular about the early 19th century today. Uh, Bill and I were discussing last time the, uh, well, we, we started with a, you know, modern day reference, uh, you know, the, the continued uh, debates with, you know, young earth creationists that we have down to this very day that sort of, you know, certainly are an element of the controversy about whether science and religion are compatible. And then that led into a discussion of, you know, to go back to our history of, of geology as a discipline. You know, so Steno, who is obviously a believer, you know, bequeaths these basic ideas of stratigraphy, you know, that the oldest is on the bottom, most fundamentally, and that, you know, other, other common sense laws, if you look at the earth and, you know, simply grant the assumption that it probably formed over time, Steno's laws are very much simply common sense interpretations based on the, uh, based on that fundamental assumption that things weren't simply put in place just as they are because they're somehow perfect or that paradigm, you know, that you could, you could, if you, if you read the book of Genesis with the idea that it's telling you most of what there is to know, most of what's worth knowing about the earth, um, then you have creation and then you have Noah's flood as the other great uh, shaping force. And so in the 17th century, that was many people's paradigm. That was, you know, it was still an era where, in order to be a reputable public intellectual, you had to hew to, well, at that point, either Catholic or Protestant orthodoxy, which in many cases, Protestant orthodoxy was even more rigid than Catholic orthodoxy. Not mm-hmm. coincidentally, Steno, you know, after being born in Denmark, winds up in, he goes to France and then to Italy, winds up conser- converting to the Catholic faith. That's actually not, <laughs> despite what you might hear from people purveying the standard line about Galileo, the Galileo episode showing that the church was fundamentally, the Catholic church was fundamentally opposed to science. Um, that's, right, that's, right. it doesn't work out in detail. It depends, right. simply depends on where you were, the personalities involved. Um, it could be just as hard to be a Protestant, if not more so, and be a scientist in that era. Yeah, and then the 18th many, century, uh, what? Many scientists are, 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 were priests uh, still today. Oh yeah, yeah, down to this very day. That's, yeah. that's the thing, you know, you know, down to the era of uh, Maitre and uh, oh shoot, how am I forgetting uh, the guy at the Vatican Observatory? Oh Consolania. yes, Cigliano. Oh yeah, guy Consolania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, down to this very day. That's the thing. It's it. Uh, there, there's more flexibility. There, there's just yeah. It, it's it's a question. Yeah. Yeah, at, at some point you have to be humble before the book and say, I don't know necessarily how to read the book, because you also have to be humble before the world that you're, you know, inhabiting. That's uh, right. That's, that's the right. difficulty. That's the difficulty. Um, yeah. As, yeah. as you know, scripture itself would assure us, you know, arrogance is a great and key failing of human beings. But so, so we talked about neptunism last time and, you know, the, it's con- you know, and to some degree that it's um, fundamentally opposed by volcanism or even, of course, the idea that was not necessarily it's not necessarily obvious that there's heat inside the earth. You know, yes, if you live by a volcano, that's more persuasive. Um, but even those people, you know, even people in Italy 
and France, where there's, you know, recently extinct volcanoes in southern France. Mm-hmm. Even those people were often able to convince themselves, well, this is a uh, combusting coal seam, and that's generating the heat for this uh, volcano, yes. It's not that the Earth gets, you know, dreadfully hot inside to the point where it reaches the melting point of rock. That's that's a little, that's, that's another step. And people did take that step, but it was by no means. I mean, if you ever have you ever read Journey to the Center of the Earth? Of course, Jules Verne was a little late to the party for that to be believable. But uh-huh. have you ever read that book? No, I've only seen the movie. I've only seen the movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's probably good enough, right? Yeah, um, good, yeah. Because, because I mean, the the whole idea is that there could somehow be caves. I mean, a modern day version would be the core, you know, in terms of this. If you've ever seen that movie, our whole department. Uh, our whole department. I actually have. Yes. I think about that. That came out when I was in graduate school, and about ten of us, you know, bought out a row in the movie theater, and we just heckled that movie. Um, because you know, the idea that they're you know they're burrowing into the earth that's ridiculous enough. But okay, maybe there's some bizarro quantum physics technology that you could do this with. Okay, fine, I can suspend my disbelief that far. But then they burrow into the earth and they find this great big hole somewhere in the mantle where diamonds are spontaneously yeah. forming. No, can't yeah. be done. Yeah, no. <laughs> and then they go go about uh, exploding nuclear bombs in the middle right. of that hole. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Oh, um, quite, a, quite an adventure. Talk about catastrophism, which I think we started setting on that. That sounds like a good example. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Catastrophe. Yeah. So, so that's so that's another idea. So, Neptunism, you know, arguably borrows from the idea of Noah's flood. Catastrophism, you know, borrows from the idea of Noah's flood in a different sense, not the water, but the idea that, you know, there's this big dramatic event, and that's what's really important in terms of the history of the Earth, are big dramatic events that we don't see on a day-to-day basis. So that, and that's a very, you know, that's a very persuasive idea. You know, we don't see, you know, we look at the hills, you know, the everlasting hills. We look at the Earth. It doesn't change very fast, you know, certainly over human lifetimes. It is hard to believe that, you know, there, are, you know, the, this stream flowing in the bottom, you know, a hundred yards or a few hundred yards to the south of me is really cutting this valley. You know, that it's really, you know, from year to year making this valley a little bit deeper. Yeah. On the other hand, if I pay attention to the details, you know, from year to year, I do notice that, you know, it's pushing mud back and forth across the valley. Maybe it is a little bit deeper. Things do change. And certainly in the course of a year, it floods a couple of times, and, and there are changes that I can see from that. Um, right. so, it's, so there's a tension between this idea that, you know, things happen in big pulses, or that things happen, and what, what sort of won the day in the 19th century is what we call an Anglo-American circle's uniformitarianism. And so that that was first popularized by a Scotsman named James Hutton in the late 18th century, and it was really, you know, pushed and, uh, you know, gained a lot of ground and pushed, quote, catastrophism into the, nearly into the shadows around 1830 by the, um, by Charles Lyell, who publishes the book called Principles of Geology starting in 1830. Um, in three volumes, you know, I, I think that, you know they were all they were all out by 1835, and he really, you know, sort of pushed the debate in the direction of uniformitarianism. And of course, as is often the case, you know, when a new idea comes, 
into prominence, we take it too far. And right. so, in fact, a lot of the time since Lyell has has been dialing back, you know, there are catastrophes that happen. There are rare events that happen from time to time that, in fact, we haven't even seen during reported human history. Right. That, you know, the literally everyday events happening on the Earth actually aren't sufficient to shape everything that we see on the Earth. Right. And so, that's a, so there's a tension, and, and as is almost always the case, the truth is really somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. So, and another another aspect of James Hutton, uh, an interesting one to bring up in the context of the debate between faith and reason. So Hutton is a is a um, in many ways a typical 18th century figure in that he's got what looks to us today, you know. So so your modern atheist scientist is of course completely allergic to the idea that there's any teleology, right? Mm-hmm. The universe. Mm-hmm. Running down its rails, you know, and no one built its rails. It just has these physical laws, um, and it's yes. just doing what it's doing. No one, there is no purpose. No one has an intention that's, you know, pushing it in the direction that was. Hutton was not like that. So Hutton, while on, while you know, pushing this methodology of, you know, things are just staying the same, he believed there was a purpose to it. That in fact, yeah, yeah. there was, you know, in the deist sort of sense, right? The sort of great watchmaker of the 18th century, you know, not, not necessarily a god who, you know, at that point they were already beginning to discard, you know, revelation. You know, we were, that's, that's the era, that's the century that led up to the French Revolution. And the French Revolution leads us to Marxism and, you know, institutional atheism and the, the sort of destructive scriptural exegesis of the 19th century. You know the ongoing the ongoing war against believing that you know scripture actually has anything to do with history at all has anything to do with any kind of truth. Um, mm. It leads you to you know the people in the present day who claim that Jesus didn't even exist, things like that. You know people who've, who've right. taken that so far. Um, but but you know so Hutton is only a step down that path. You know, he believes that there is, there is, you know, just like, you know, the Thomas, the creator of, you know, the Declaration of Independence that has endowed men with certain inalienable rights that we determine from, you know, philosophy as opposed to, you know, revelation necessarily. Right. Hutton sees that, you know, this, this uniformitarian world exists so as to maintain a surface condition within certain parameters that allows life to exist. You know, that it's not going to go too far one direction or another, and that that's, you know, the purpose of this, you know, at this point we could talk about an Aristotelian prime mover, you know, that has has an intention that the world stay in this condition. Yeah, so that's, that's yeah. kind of a fascinating step in itself. Right. Um, let's, you know, let's see. So there, and it, another figure in the late 18th century. So he get, this gets quoted. So there's a poet. He is no longer that widely known a poet, but uh, William Cowper. Hmm. I'm not even sure I'm saying his okay. name right, but he is an English poet of the late 18th century. So there is yeah. a, an extract from this long poem of his called "The Task." Um, there's there's a six or eight line section that ends with you know he's he's discussing the geologists of the day. But they drill right, right. the strata and they extract a register that says that, 
you know, basically, and he winds up with his ironic statement that he who made the world and told and, and gave its date, you know, and gave its, you know, history to Moses, which of course that's <laughs> that in itself hmm. is a para-scriptural. I mean, it goes back to the ancient world, right? It goes yeah. back to Christian times that you know uh, the rabbinical interpretation is that the Torah was basically written by Moses, which of course the right. Torah says that anywhere. Um, no, but that's but that's the standard um, that's the standard interpretation, and was all the way into the 19th century, and and, and still mm. is you know some people today. Uh, but you know that he who told its you know history to Moses was mistaken in its age, and of course Cowper you know which of course gets quoted by people like Hallam who are you know pulling it out just as a commentary on. You know the the unease that people were feeling at that time that you really could not try as you might uh, make come up with a concordance between a very minimal reading of the Book of Genesis and geologic history as it was seen by you know going out and looking at sedimentary deposits in caves or rivers or mountains. Um, right. that, that you simply can't you know you can't get this worldwide flood to match the evidence. You just can't. Um, Cowper, interestingly, if you read the poem in context, which I haven't even read the whole thing, but I at least have read the hundred lines around it, uh, he's actually criticizing these scholars. And he's criticizing them, you know, for wasting their lives. Like, he is pretty literally criticizing them for wasting their lives. You know, he goes on to, after that, he's even more acidic toward uh, people in the 18th century speculating about astronomical phenomena. Huh. And so and so he winds up, you know, commenting that they are they're wasting their lives on these empty bubbles and that they, you know, they need to focus on their faith. And so that's Cowper is, you know, giving voice to a tradition and you can you can trace this back and this is in a way, you know, this is kind of a second millennium attitude, I would almost say. And it's and it's uh. a problem attitude on the side of people with faith. And you can trace that back through Steno. Now, Steno felt this, you know, seems to have felt this, that, you know, he had to abandon his scholarship in order to be the best Christian that he could be. Pascal, you know, Blaise Pascal has to abandon mathematics in order to satisfy himself that, you know, he, he needs to be spending time philosophizing and uh, doing speculative theology, that that's more important than uh, than, than uh, doing mathematics. You can even trace that all the way back to Aquinas, perhaps. I mean, I, hmm. I think you definitely can. I mean, and these would just be examples. There would be many other people who, you know, express this attitude in one way or another. But that, you know, that episode with Aquinas at the end of his life, where he has this great mystical experience and lays aside philosophy, doesn't finish his Summa Theologiae, um, that has to be, you know, cobbled together by his um, by his disciples after his death mm. from his other writings. Um, they felt this great tension between science or mathematics or philosophy and their faith. Okay. So, yeah. a, and and you know, and and uh, the biography of Steno uh, comments that there were a lot of his peers, his contemporaries, who were sorely, bitterly disappointed. But Steno was doing this. I mean, whether, you know, and not even, you know, necessarily his Protestant, <laughs> his Protestant uh, 
compatriots or or correspondents, uh, uh-huh. but even the Catholic ones, obviously, and even even believing Catholic ones, you know that. And this, so this attitude of, you know, and I don't know what you would want to call this attitude, but this, but this is a notion, and it is kind of problematic, and in a, in a way, it is its own little sort of scandal, or even moderate-sized sort of scandal, that faith, you know, that this excessive sort of fideism, okay, there's a term I guess you could throw at it, ah, um, uh-huh. that that steals people away from, you know, study of the world of reason or the world of, you know, science, the world of observation and reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's, that's a bad thing in itself, you know, that, cause there you can make progress. And of course there's the implicit idea that you can't make any progress in, uh, in, in, you know, exploring the faith, which is, you know, arguably also wow. false, but yeah, but yeah, but there's, there is this strain of, of thought that, you know, you can't do both. And, and, and that's something that I don't think, you know, I, I think there's been a turn in the 19th and 20th centuries away from that in terms of what people are saying within, you know, within the camp of faith, whether we talk about yeah. the second Vatican council, whether you talk about Jose Maria Escriva, whether even, mm. I think to some degree you could talk about Isaac Hecker, the founder of the Paul, the Paulists in the 19th century recognition really? that, we need a new attitude, and we need an ad. And of course, the Society of Catholic Scientists, I think, are pretty much everyone in that organization um, would be, to one degree or another, an exponent of the attitude that we probably should take science very seriously. That it will, you know, that being good scientists will get us somewhere in terms right. of a debate between faith, reason, science, and you know, in a way. There's this, uh, I, I think it may end up being parallel to the idea of, you know, the tension between being a Christian and being a soldier in the ancient world. Huh, yeah. There, 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 is a, there is a prominent class of martyrs in the ancient church who were former soldiers who, you know, converted to Christianity. And, you know, at, the, at that point, they, they became, you know, outside martial law. They, they were tried and executed because they were not, you know, reverencing the standard, right? You know, that there was a pagan, a pagan ritual. I mean, and of course it goes beyond this. Not only were they, you know, traitors to the pagan ritual, you know, around the, the legionary standards, but they were also, you know, how could they be Christian and continue fighting? How could they be Christian and continue you know, wielding their sword and killing people in any, you know, for almost any purpose. Uh. Of course, that's very strange to us today because, you know, in in the modern, you know, in contemporary America, you know, conservatism and reverencing the military and the sacrifices that they make, you know, that's all that's all considered to be of a piece, and the internal. Yeah. Tech- within it are not, you know, not commonly, uh, not commonly discussed. We've, That's we've just gone into, yeah. into a completely different paradigm and attitude about that. Yeah. Huh. Well, <laughs> that, uh, th- th- these are some interesting, uh, uh, uh takeaways that I, I hadn't, uh, we hadn't talked about in, in previous episodes, uh, these roots of, um, these roots of that, uh, at least at the personal level, uh, 
Today, it's more at the policy and political uh, uh, level, uh, and uh, you know, a, a, a matter of a personal uh, prejudices. Uh, but people did. Uh, the people early on felt a tension between science and religion. But I would argue too, right, that um, uh, that the people involved in science owed it to science uh, to uh, heed uh, and use its scientific method uh, and its principles fully, without you know uh, peppering them with with religious uh, thought. But that didn't necessarily mean that uh, they threw away their religious side or their religious thought. Right. 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 So, there, so there was, it was like a, it was like a creative tension. Yeah, yeah, it, it can be, and in many cases, you know, has been demonstrated to be a creative tension. But yeah. that's, yeah, I mean, it's it's a question of, <laughs> to some degree, it ends up being a question of how willing you are to be scandalized by it. You know, if you're, <laughs> right. looking, if you're looking for that, you right. will find it. Well, and, and of course, um, uh, both science and religion, uh, following both, uh, have elements of being willing to be scandalized or at least surprised. Uh, the, you know, God's wisdom is not Earth's wisdom, and, oh, and gosh, uh, yes. we're bound to we're bound to be surprised. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. You know, so you so you have people like Werner and Hutton who are you know are throwing away you know their this the sort of Genesis minimalist interpretation, and yet they would become just as dogmatic about their own theories or lie out. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's very and and you know and of course that becomes very hilarious. You know, for us, you know, from the perspective of a century and a half later or more, 200 years later, uh, because, you know, they were <laughs> ridiculously wrong about about certain key things, many key yeah. things. In Werner's case, almost everything. And yet <laughs> he served a he served a very fundamental purpose in, you know, in at least at least proposing the idea that you could systematize this thought. You know the idea that you could put things into this broader paradigm, and that's something yeah. you know that's that's not easily uh, replaced. Yeah, yeah. Well, with these uh, with these uh, uh, takeaways, personal takeaways that uh, I've called from from this episode and the uh, the context uh, that you're painting with this narrative arc uh, from Steno onward, uh, and uh, in anticipation of a next episode where you bring it into uh, the actual uh, more current uh, uh, debate that you you might have actually had there on your uh, on your trip uh, with your friend uh, I, I will propose uh, leaving room for the arc to continue in a next episode would that be okay oh yeah yeah no there's uh, there, there's uh, to use a geologic mi- uh, metaphor I don't think we've mined out this vein uh, by any stretch. Yeah. <laughs> Spoken like a true geologist. That's right. I, I have even taught or geology, so yes. I've never taken it, but I've taught it. That happens sometimes in academia. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, but uh, So this is Bill Smith, and uh, I thank you, uh, Paul, for uh, our conversation today, and look forward to uh, the ongoing nature of this conversation. Until next time.